Hello, it's episode 15 of Where Did It All Go Right? Welcome if you're new to the podcast and uh, hello again if you've uh, been with us since the very beginning. There's loads of great episodes to enjoy and uh, they're all there waiting for you and I'll tell you how you can listen. Well, you're listening now, aren't you? But I can can remind you how you can listen at the end of the podcast. Um, I'm Ali Jones and it's been really great to have so many creative people on the podcast so far. I've been really keen to get a chef on because I think it's a great creative job but it's also a very tough creative job. I wanted to know how you get those Michelin stars and, and make a great creme brulee. Actually, I don't want to know about the creme brulee because I know I'd never be able to make one. Um, but I probably wanted to find out if even executive chefs have cooking disasters just to make me feel better about my own cooking skills. So this week's guest is Andrew Scott. Now, Andrew is an award-winning chef. He's worked his way up through many award-winning kitchens, right the way to the top via the Great British Menu. Uh, he's recently moved to Mila as development chef. Now, do not listen to this if you are hungry because, warning, food is mentioned. Enjoy. Well, Andrew, it's lovely sitting amongst all these brilliant Mila appliances in, in, in a kitchen that I one day dream will be, will be like mine. And I'm wondering when you started working in a kitchen, I think it was 14, wasn't 14. it? 14. Did you ever imagine that you would become an executive chef, you would go on the Great British Menu, and then you would be sitting working with all these yeah. amazing people here? I don't think I did. I, start, I had such passion for my career. Um, and my, the, the only thing that drove me was my dad. When I was younger and I was coming to near choosing your GCSEs and choosing what you want to do, even choosing what school I was going to go to, my dad tried to send me to Blocks and Boys School. I refused because I wanted to hang out with my friends at Banbury School. So he wasn't happy with that. When we got to the end of that, I said, I want to be a chef. He said, no, there's no career in being a chef, be a hotel manager. So again, I went against him on that one. So I then had to drive myself to become the best I could so to show him and when we went to Great British Menu Studios to drop off my props and all my bits and pieces for the next day he took me he drove me down saved me going on the train or driving myself and we went for some lunch afterwards and I said to him right I said have I done it because <laughs> and he smiled and it was a nice moment like a proud moment yeah. because um you know when we were having those sort of ding-dongs back in the day. <laughs> Just a difference of opinion. Difference of opinion. Yeah. So I proved myself and did it. But no, I, to be honest, I never in a million years thought I would get as far as I've got. I'm quite. I'm very proud of myself. Great British Menu is an amazing achievement because yeah. I used to lie on my bed after school or college and watch that religiously. To be able to take part, it was really good. So... You know, I've had a very nice career so far today. So far. And, and Great British Menu's coming back, actually, mm, um, yeah. very soon. How do you get on a show like that? How does that you work? You get asked to go on Great British Menu. You so, get invited. Yeah, so you apply for MasterChef Professionals. Um, Great British Menu, you can't ask to be on it. There's nobody to contact. So there was one day when I was back at my last job in the kitchen, the commie chef answered the phone. Said, chef, chef, phone for you. It's so and so, Katie from Optimum TV or whoever film it. And they said, uh, it's from Great British Menu. And I was like, come on. I thought it was one of my friends winding me up. So I went on the phone for the first 20 seconds. I thought it was a wind up. And I then realised how serious it was. I shut the door and I was on the phone for about an hour. And they interview you on the phone first. 
Straight away to then. Straight away. To see so what you're like. Hop, yeah, yeah. just like that. And, and then you're like, hang on, I've got some, some burgers cooking. I can't well, speak to you now. The, all the guys are coming in trying to order the fish for the next day and try and talk to the butcher. And I had to write in, in my pen on the notepad, great British menu. And they're like, Shut no up, way, yeah. like that. And I'm like, just get out of the office. Because that was my interview off the cuff. And if I hadn't have passed that, I wouldn't have got to the next process. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is really like right place, right time. Sprinkling of luck and being able to talk to somebody you've never spoken to so yeah so that you kind of auditioned you got through and then the whole process of how long does the filming take and it's only a week for your for your week it's a a week so you turn up and you do lots of walking shots one day putting fruit and veg into crates and all those in between shots opening doors walking through um you've got to dress quite nice for when you're entering the studios and they film you walking down the streets um, and like make you really embarrassed as like a zebra crossing and they're making me hold all the traffic up and they're like look left look right and there's people at rush hour beating their horns at you like come on so yeah it was quite fun and then obviously chefs when they're together always a bit naughty we don't get out much you're in the centre of London mm. free hotel mm. so the three of us were out in town and we met up with another chef and it was about two in the morning so you were a bit bleary eyed the first day it's yeah. not, not a great yeah. way no, to it's start not really, no. a massive competition. But we had a really good time. The, the two lads that I was with, Danny and Daniel, that we had such a good time through the week. So, yeah, they film Starter and Main one day. So Starter and Fish one day, Main and Pudding in one day, and it's at six in the morning till midnight day. It's full on. And yeah. because they're filming you like that, they get real emotion and real temper tantrums and real, <laughs> real exhausted. emotion. It'd be all right if you hadn't gone to bed at 2 a.m. Yeah, well, exactly. I didn't know that. <laughs> Uh, would you ever do anything like that again I'd love to yeah Yeah. I'd love to I think I was naive the first time because I think I thought it's a show about the three chefs you're just pawns in the in the show you know they can do what they want with you they can mess you know they can mess around with you they can I felt that you were always they were scrutinizing every move you made and they would know when you were for instance making something that was quite difficult like um, an Italian meringue they would come and talk to you. They knew how to put you off. The cameraman was always on your shoulder. It was tough. It was a really tough environment. Yeah. It's not like cooking in your kitchen. I didn't feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And of all the the things that you made for that show, what were you the, were you the most proud of? Was it the meringues? The pudding. Yeah, Is the it? meringues. They knew the meringue was going to be hard, but I made this massive pudding. It was like an afternoon tea based on um, a lady that I worked with in Banbury at the Waitley Hall. Um, it was an afternoon tea pudding, inspired pudding. And there were so many elements to it and I managed to get it all out and I was so happy it came out perfectly. And that's when the two guys actually, the two other chefs, gave me a 10. And, but I only got an 8 for it in the end. If I'd have got the 10, I'd have got through to judges. So, I was a, so yeah, I would love to do it again or something like that again because I've got sort of um, yeah, some demons to slay. So I'd quite like to get to the judges. <laughs> yes, I've got to get that 10. But it's not guaranteed, you know. Yeah. So. Do you think it's also important for someone who, who wants to do well in, in your world to go on these sort of shows? Because um, it gets you more known, doesn't it? I think it's good for your confidence and it's good to have some practice at doing things like radio, TV... Um, you know social media is a huge part of your career now you've got to be careful what you put on social media it's got to be positive it's got to be bright and fun you know you can really do well with you if you use social media well and tv and radio well it can propel you Mm. it had it has done with me one one go on um, British menu and I got to do lots of food festivals and um, you know get invited to lots of nice prestigious things in the cooking world in London you get to rub shoulders some of your idols it's really really good so yeah I would say it's not the be all and end 
all and not everyone's going to get a chance and sometimes it's not right for the right people you know if you're a bit of a sort of shrinking violet and I wouldn't say to push yourself to do it. there's no need mm. just let the food that you cook do the talking mm. but if you quite like a bit of that then yeah go for it because it won't hurt you know as long as you don't take it too seriously it won't hurt and, and you talk about on social media I've noticed that you chefs are quite a tight-knit bunch so mm. if someone has got a job then you'll retweet it yeah. and if someone's looking for something the other day I noticed you were looking for something quite strange to put your food on. It yeah, was, like uh, some big polished pebbles. Shit, what was that? <laughs> That's for this room. So when we launch our new products this year at Mila, we're going to be doing some um, food inspired by architecture. So I wanted some stone and some pebbles, and I've got to make the food look a bit so the same colour scheme as how we make our appliances. So it's it's all themed. So I wanted did some big find, rocks. Did you find the rocks? No, I need, go to, to, go to, I need to go to a garden centre, I think. <laughs> no, I, when I tweeted it, I thought... Someone's bound to help me, and my friend Nick put go to Juicens. I was like, oh, thanks a lot. So, so yeah, no, sometimes it's really helpful for ingredients, recommending suppliers, recommending places to eat. If you're going on holiday, you know, you say, I'm off to Barcelona, could anyone recommend a restaurant? Um, chefs, chefs are so hard to find now because it's a really tough job. And I think people have wised up that it's not all the glamour that Jamie Oliver and, and those, you know, the TV chefs have uh, portrayed it. And people are realising that you miss a lot of social events. It's not brilliantly paid at the start, really. Lots of long hours. So, yeah, it's it's hard. So when someone is looking for chefs, I think we all try and help and retweet yeah. it. Yeah. Because if you know somebody or, you know, you could just have a little commie chef in the corner who's just said, oh, I've done my time with you. I'd quite like to move to Manchester. And then you see a chef from Manchester looking, you can sort of put the two mm, together. Mm. Um, it helps. It really does help. So. So, so you said at the beginning, long hours, yeah, not very well paid. So how did you sort of get through that and then get to become an exec chef? Because were there times at the very beginning when you were washing up? And, and I washed up, yeah, 14. I was washing up at the Waitley Hall for two years. Did you not think, I'm going to jack this in? This must mm. be an easy way of making it. I loved the washing up. It was the easiest job. I was so rich at <laughs> secondary school. I had 50 quid in my pocket every week. I was probably more rich then than I am now. But um, the chefs, the atmosphere in the kitchen, the camaraderie, the practical jokes, the just everything. This once you get in the click, they take you out and, you know, probably drinking a little bit under my, you know, the legal age back then in nineteen ninety, whatever it was. But it was all fun and it was addictive. Mm. And no matter what, you just love the buzz of the kitchen and I think you know whether you belong there or you don't. Um, some people become waiters and they're younger and they, they it's just a job before university or while they're at uni and they go off and do their profession. Or some people get infected by it and they stay and do it and they do a really good job of it. So I sort of knew. I did a cooking competition with the Scouts in Banbury and then the chef judging was the head chef at Waitley Hall. So he took me in, he gave me, he redid my menu before I did uh, the final at the Randolph and then they offered me a job after, but I was too young to... Um, work in the kitchen I could only do the washing up so as soon as my 16th birthday came they got me in the kitchen Banbury College for three years and that was it it was hook line and sinker there was nothing (laughs) I wasn't getting out of that um, trade for a long time so I've had some understanding family some understanding ex-girlfriends um, my fiance now is very understanding, um, but yeah, I've worked a lot of long hours. I've missed out on some family occasions. This year was my first year. I've been cooking for twenty-one or twenty-two years. It's my first year. I've been out on Valentine's night and eaten 
Someone I've always else's cooked food. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I bet that was amazing. So it was really weird for me. And yeah. this year, I know that I'm off Christmas Day, which is weird for me. Again, I yes. would be working. Yeah, I yeah. worked this year just well last year just gone. Because you've always, always been New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, yes. um, bank holidays. You know, when people, oh, what are you doing this bank holiday? It's it's to a chef. It's just another day. It's just a busy day usually. Um, you've got to really, really love it, yeah, haven't you? you to, have. to give everything up like exactly. that. And it, it is a, such a creative job as well because you must always be thinking about ingredients, yeah. new menus, seasons. Yes. Yeah, you, I follow the seasons as much as I can. And this year so far has been quite good actually. Spring has actually happened when it's meant to happen. So like the wild garlic's up. My fiance picked some the other day actually in the woods, and she made she got home and made wild garlic and walnut pesto. Ooh. She likes cooking more than I do. I think at home. <laughs> so, well, you probably so, just don't want to do it when you. So get home, I get she she makes some lovely dinners. So yeah, we. I, I look at all the seasons, so rhubarb's in at the moment, blood oranges are just finishing, um, the wild garlic's coming in, then you're going to get asparagus, broad beans. So the menus write themselves, if you mm. follow the seasons, mm. which is the correct thing to do. The ingredients is in, in an abundance, it's the best you can eat it, and it's the cheapest you can buy it. So you'd be silly it's to go no against brainer. the grain. Yes. So when you've got strawberries on, they're in season, and they mm. taste beautiful, that's when you serve them. So, yeah constantly inspired by reading eating out watching telly you know you can watch anything just from a saturday morning cook show to like master chef or british menu or you know whatever uh, just a travel show you could see mm. i remember watching rick stein and he went to spain or portugal and he had an almond gazpacho and i off the back of that i made a dish because i always when i was younger i always thought that gazpacho was just a tomato but you can a tomato dish but you can have an almond one a chilled almond soup so yeah, just watching travel programs, cookery programs, it gets you gets your creative mm. juices flowing. Mm. And I always have a notebook. I write down different bits and pieces and go back to it. So and experimenting there, there must be times because not just me that occasionally experiments. Does a meal for my kids and they go, Ugh, you must have, you can't, it can't always go well. No, of course it doesn't. And it's the thing here at Mila when I'm doing the cooking cooking demonstrations or talking to customers, and they ask me a question and I don't know. Sometimes I'm not, you know, I don't know everything about food. I'm still learning myself. And I say to them, sometimes, you know, you do have to make a mistake. You do have to mess it up to learn how to do it the right way. So it is about developing and evolving dishes. Um, my new role now is a development chef. So I'm making a few mistakes here and there and messing things up. But um, eventually you get a brilliant finished product because it's all about practice, yeah. you know, practice, practice. And then we get that perfect creme brulee or whatever that we're cooking the perfect sponge so and when you were starting out I imagine that to become a really great chef you've got to be a really good listener and take direction you must see people coming into kitchens who it doesn't quite work because they're not mm. a team player what, what would you say do you, do you need yeah, to be you've got to be a good man manager and you've got to understand that not everyone is motivated the same that mm. everyone has a life outside of work and there can be issues outside so sometimes you need to know when to put an arm around someone, sometimes you need to just back off, sometimes you know you need to know when to have a little shout and put the pressure on to get them moving a bit quicker. And, and is, is it a cliche, a little shout and a swear? I mean, we see Just a little sort of a motivational shout rather than swearing at them. <laughs> right. That doesn't go, no, I don't do that, but just to say, come on guys, let's pick up the pace, it's mm. a bit slow, come on, you know, work a bit cleaner, a bit tidier, and you know, they, they usually go up a gear, you can see it actually physically happening so but I learned a lot of man management from one of my first head chefs in the Michelin star kitchen so his name's Simon Haig and he's had a Michelin star for like nearly 20 years so he was a brilliant man manager and I used to watch him from afar and he would see everything we used to call him like the all-seeing eye 
and he I would watch how he managed people and he treated people so differently but you wouldn't notice unless you watched because you're in your own little section your yes. own little cocoon yes. so he, he knew would talk what to people differently you know Scott like. in the corner loves talking about football that's the way to go and have a nice chat with him so and so likes hip hop music so go and chat about you know yeah. Biggie Smalls to him yeah. um, Andrew's a bit quiet or shy he needs just you to go and work next to him you know and show him the way a few times and then he'll build his confidence so that's what I've learned and the best part for me in kitchens in the last few years is bringing the young ones up so taking them in from college or as an apprentice teaching them those core skills and watching them flourish so my last job I had a few come through the ranks and go off and do better things so yeah so you did college is that something that's essential could you go straight into a kitchen you could there's lots of different ways of doing chefing you can just go and get an apprenticeship um through hit training they're a really good it's a really good scheme so it's a hospitality training so that's sort of like an on the job you get paid um a salary and you get like somebody coming in to sort of tutor you and inspect what you're doing and then the head chef works for them you can get a day release program where you'd go and work four days in the kitchen, one day at college, go to an actual college in your town and do practical work and paperwork there. Or you can do full-time course, which is what I did. So I went to Banbury College full-time. Um, Gordon Ramsay went to Banbury College day release. So I don't know, you choose which one's <laughs> best. He did all right. He did all right. So, okay. yeah. So it's, it's, I think it's the type of person you are. I think when um, people say... Uh, when you leave school if you go to sixth form it's because you need to be pushed by the teachers they keep on top of you whereas college is a bit more of a grown-up environment and they leave you to it Mm. it's what sort of person you are how you learn um you know if you need pushing if you need motivating so yeah I, I enjoyed my three years at college it didn't hold me back at all and I went on to a brilliant job but you could go in at 16 into a Michelin star kitchen if you wanted to but you've got to be pretty tough and you've got to be pick things up very fast so if you don't then maybe go and learn your core skills first before you enter <laughs> a big kitchen like enter that. The, the, the calmness yes. <laughs> sometimes and, and so your jobs you kind of kind of went around the country doing at different levels can you just talk us through that mm, so Mallory Court was my first job that was three rosettes one Michelin star so that's a really really good standard and I was just on the veg section for about 18 months I remember peeling pet red peppers and making rusty potatoes and aubergine caviar for the whole summer I think <laughs> but you got but you really made good it until it. you were the best at it in the kitchen <laughs> Um, and basically what I did there was under Simon is learn all my core skills so I did larder which is starters hot and cold starters the veg section which is the garnish for all the mains pastry and then I moved on and I went to go and work for Simon Rogan who's a top top chef now sort of world worldwide chef he's just opening a restaurant in Hong Kong um, and went and worked at Long Clume in Cumbria and he taught me um, molecular gastronomy was all the rage and we learned how to make things into bubbles and balloons and Is this Heston Blumenthal Hest- country? Style, yeah. so Heston okay. and Simon were sort of yeah. coming through at the same time uh, we were putting things in syringes and all sorts but he has two Michelin stars there now and five rosettes he's just one off of being the maximum accolade you can earn <laughs> And lots of medicine cabinets Unbelievable um, <laughs> I then went from there to Lords of the Manor in Upper Slaughter and that was a traditional kitchen I went in at a higher level started to learn a bit of management skills Simon then rang me and said come back and be my sous chef which was amazing to go from apprentice when I was 19 to go back as sous Um, So I was sous chef is just under the head chef. He then got promoted about a year later to uh, group chef. And then I was given the responsibility of leading the Michelin star kitchen. So I did that for about 
two or three years um so that was amazing to look after his michelin star which was like looking after his child oh and not lose it that was really nerve-wracking <laughs> every year when the michelin guy well, came i want to ask you about this i don't understand this so you've got the the, the aa stars aa rosettes yeah and you've got the michelin, michelin stars yeah and uh, which is better and, um, and how does it work None of the so you've got the good food guide as well, which is a score from one to ten. Um, you've got the hardens guide, which they score ambience, food, and service. Ambience. I think it's yeah. I think it's which guide that you prefer. It's like you know what make of card do you like. What what's your favourite um, you know designer label? Okay. It's it's which guide you enjoy reading the most. They're all very good. They all put lots hundred percent effort in. I know the Michelin guide is like the sort of the one that everyone holds in a higher regard because it's been going a lot longer it's its roots are from france so we respect french cookery Mm -hmm. etc but the other guides that are born and bred in britain like the rosette guide they're very very good as well so it all depends there's no sort of you can have a one rosette restaurant with a michelin star you can have five rosettes and no michelin star just because you have a certain accolade in one doesn't mean that you're guaranteed one in the other so and do they give you warning when they turn up no, they just come. So they just. And do you know who they are? Sometimes they stick out because they come on their own, and they'll order their driving. So they're not going to drink a lot. They may just walk in. They may not book. Um, they'll give a false name. They won't give their. <laughs> some some dodgy name comes in. They'll, so they'll drink a tonic water usually with their canapes in the lounge. That's a that's a real clue. So by then in the back, are you all kind of nudging? So each they're other a tonic going, water, and they're it? reading a magazine, and you're thinking, who's this? strange person on Wednesday lunchtime they order full a la carte which is another one so you've got most people on a lunch deal will have the set sort of three courser they go a la carte or tasty you think oh here we go and then they might order a really nice glass of wine to go like a good Chablis or you know Cote d'Aron or something just one glass depending on the main course and then they'll, they'll either announce themselves and they'll have a chat with you at the end at the end they'll they'll say They'll pay the bill and they will say, they will know the chef in the kitchen, they'll know the name. They'll say, is Andrew here today? And they'll hand over their their business cards to the restaurant manager. The restaurant manager will either act surprised because he didn't know or will be like, okay, you know, fair enough. Or be lying down in the corner in a hot sweat. (laughs) Breathing in a paper bag. And then you go out and you go and sit with them. Or they can just literally leave their card on the table and walk out. Having paid, I hope. Having paid. Or they don't leave a card at all and they come and go just like a normal customer. Because at the end of the day, they are there to grade the restaurant for the general public. Mm. So the general public have as good an experience as they do. So the best thing is for them not to be caught unless they are wanting to do an announced inspection which is just a marker in the ground for you to get some time one-to-one with an inspector, whichever guide it is. So you can get things off your chest if there's something bothering you. They might give you a little bit of advice. They might talk to you about what they've eaten that night and give you a little bit of feedback. But they usually just let you cook how you think you should be cooking and not try and manufacture Michelin stars or rosettes. They They like you to have your own style. So we're not all cooking the same. And once you've got that star or stars, how often do they come back then? Uh, we don't. Nobody really knows, to be honest. We don't know how many the inspect- inspectors are in the team for it's Great very Britain. They it? just do. They come and go as they please. I don't know even know if they use any of the other guides, if they read any of the guides, or they read something like TripAdvisor for as a yardstick of how a place is doing. Yeah. Um, or it's just literally their readers writing in and saying they've had a fantastic time or a bad time. Maybe that, you know, if they had a bad letter, they would flag it and say, look, we need to go and visit Andrew mm. and see, and they do an undercover anonymous one. Um, or they're basically coming back. If you've got the one star Michelin or the three rosettes, you're going to be obviously going for four rosettes or mm. two Michelin. Mm. 
So they will come back and they'll check out whether you're still good enough for your one. If not, you're, you're going towards the number two. So they're constantly looking, I'm sure, you know, every 12 months or every six months, just dependent on um, how well you're evolving and progressing. And is that the same for restaurant critics? Do they just turn up? and it, Are mm. they important as, as important? I think they are important for PR. Marketing and PR is really good for any restaurant, especially it's your location. If you're in London, you've got that huge footfall or Oxford city centre, Birmingham, you know, the big cities, um, Cotswolds maybe, if you're sort of destination uh, location. Mm -hmm. But if you're tucked away in the corner of a village somewhere and no one really knows about you, to get a big hitting food critic to eat once and publish a good review in their paper, fantastic. Usually they're set up by PR companies. Um, the the top top food critics do have their ear to the floor and they know the up and coming places cool places a lot of it's word of mouth which is the best PR um, and they might just off you know on a whim go and visit you that's good but they can also damage you like really damage you if you get a bad review yeah they can really you know but then sometimes they do say isn't it bad PR is as good as good, good PR like, well, if it's that bad like, let's maybe go and, we'll go yeah let's go and try it so I don't know <laughs> It's all good in the end of the day. Any exposure, magazines, food critics, um, accolades, whatever guide it is, it's all good exposure. It's another person will find out about you. They might have a good experience. They tell two or three people and the ball just keeps rolling. So that's a success. So you were looking after... Uh, this baby, this Michelin star at this restaurant, and you kept it. Yeah. <laughs> and then what, what happened? Where did you go so after that? So then I got a little bit, um, it was his, and it was in his name. Um, in the last year, we had it in both names, like a couple. It's like my, I was like his work husband. Um, <laughs> Dentist. And a job came up in Kent, and it was um, for me to go and be my own, in my own right, a head chef in a Michelin star restaurant. So off I went. They had a Michelin star already. So that would be, I was retaining one. Mm which is as hard as winning one. Yes. So they look at you as a brand new chef. Uh, obviously, you've got the right ambience, the furnishings are right. It's a lovely uh, lovely restaurant to visit. It's whether your food fits in with the decor and the, and the building and whether it's up to the standard as the old head chef. So I did a year and I retained the star, which was amazing. And when you go into up. that, do you think, right, I'm going to completely change the menu? Because you have to be careful because yeah, yeah. some people might think, oh, well, we liked it as it was. I had to keep two dishes on, which were trademark dishes of the restaurant, which um, I didn't really like. What were or, they? There was, it was a twice-baked cheese souffle, which I thought was a bit old hat. But I know everyone loves them. You know, my mum loves them. Whereas a chef, it's just a bit sort of like it's overdone for a chef. Right. So that stayed on, but I changed the um, flavour every season. So it did like a smoked salmon and dill one or, you know, horseradish. Um, and then the cheese one would come occasionally. But some people would have one for starter and they'd have it for their pudding. <laughs> it did my head in a bit. I was a bit bored. You were souffléed out. Yeah. But like um, cutting all those vegetables years beforehand. So yeah. the, 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 the main course was a, a chop of beef ribbed with chips, a Michelin star for it, which, which was mad. But we kept it on and it kept the locals happy, like you said. And then I did my, my food as well around it. And we did really well. That lasted for two years. And then um, finished up and just decided I wanted to come home, closer to home. Mm-hmm. So I moved to, my next job was in Oxfordshire at Sudbury House. And, and um, that didn't have a star? No, it had nothing. It was so an old Best Western. It was a bit of a knackered old hotel. And they spent a lot of money refurbishing it. And it was a really cool project for me to sink my teeth into a brand new, yeah. you know, we had no accolades, start from scratch, choose the cutlery, choose the glassware, choose the chairs, what colour of the paint, what, where we hung the art, what, you know, how the kitchen was going to be Everything. configured. So real, I was knackered <laughs> for about a year. 
but we achieved a lot there. We did the Great British Menu. Um, Nick, who was my sous chef then, got onto MasterChef Professionals, got to the last three. We got three rosettes and we were in line for four. We'd had our inspection for four rosettes. We had about five Michelin inspections. Um, we never got the Michelin star, which was a shame because I think it would have been lovely for the venue and for the area. Mm. It really puts the area, for, you know, Farringdon on the map. Mm. Um, but who knows, you know, it might have come next year. Maybe we left too early. I don't know. It's always good to But we had fun doing it. Yeah. And we did some amazing food and we had some brilliant <clears throat> local people following us. So, but you know, some, we were there for five years and that came to an end um, just last year, which was a bit of a shame, but you know, that's life, isn't it? You, well, some... it's an exhausting job. I mean, looking back at it now, when you say, you were saying, you know, this was the first year that you've had Valentine's Day and <laughs> you can't believe at Christmas that you're going to be off. Do you look back and you think, I don't know how I did it some days, you know, it was so intense yeah. and exhausting. Or, or I suppose you're lost in it, aren't it's you? It's a young man's game. Is it? it is. And I'd set my sights on when I was 40, which is still four years off of that now, I wouldn't be doing split shifts. So this Mila job has come earlier than expected. But just the way, it, you know, I think it's sometimes a bit fate. When you're moving jobs, those, there's only a certain amount of jobs that you can apply for. Yes because you've got a rent to pay or mortgage, so you need a certain salary, you need a certain location for where you live, and you need a certain um, job satisfaction. Mm. So this all ticked all the boxes. I was very, very lucky to to get this job um, back back at the end of last year. So Which is not a split shift job. No, so, so it's nine um, to five. And what is a, so what, tell, tell us the hours for the split shift job. Split shift, it can vary with what restaurant you work in, um, but where I was before, we would do half past eight in the morning till about half past two, three p.m., then go home, and then you would I would come back to work at five, for sort of 20 past five. So you get two hours off, and then... Little doze. Little doze. I joined the gym, and we used to go swimming a bit, but you'd have to be in the right mood to do that. But also that makes you tired. By about 10 o'clock, you want to fall asleep. Or fall asleep in the jacuzzi while you're at the swimming. Then you'd come back in at half five. Um, the way that we did the rotor, that would be um, one of the chefs would start at 2 p.m., and they would cook dinner. So about half over you'd come in, you'd check the menus and almost straight away sit down and try and eat your dinner with the guys because A, it stops you picking, B, um, you have eaten so you're not feeling tired or you've got a headache or, you know, so you can concentrate for service. Um, and then we'd work till about 10, 10.30, 11, sometimes midnight. It just totally depended on whether there was a wedding or a full restaurant or slow eaters, or somebody at nine o'clock ordering the 12 course menu, you know, you'd just be like, oh my God. (laughs) Why would you do that? You'd beg the restaurant manager to not give them the biggest rest, like the biggest tasting menu, and hopefully they'll just order three course a la carte. It's never the way, is it? No, and then you're just like at 10 and you're still there, and then they haven't ordered. As soon as they order at nine, that's three hours. You know that you're not, the pudding will go at about midnight. So then it's another 20 minutes home in the car. You've got to unwind Shower watch a bit of Netflix, maybe have a gin and tonic before you know it's 1am, 1.30 and then you're back doing, it's the same you know, relentless. It is exhausting but there's some places that work you know, they're even, they work even harder but I mean I just don't think it's good for you yeah. it's not healthy. We made sure we sat down at half eleven for lunch every day and we had our dinner at sort of quarter to six every day, the guys always had a split shift, two hours, two and a half hours longer, as long as we could give them really mm-hmm. and as soon as they can go home they went home but there are other kitchens that are a bit more brutal i've worked in somewhere if you went for your split shift they would call you weak so you know 
it's just one of those things. Mm. You, you've got to make us all feel better, though. There have got to be times, though, we've got these delicious dishes that you're making, but there were times maybe when you just something went wrong, something didn't arri- something didn't arrive, an order didn't come, or mm. um, oh, we've had plenty of that. Yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> make, make us all feel better. We're the, the best disaster ever. One that I helped on. It wasn't my fault. Was <laughs> yeah, I like the display. Well, early early days, um, Waitley Hall in Banbury wedding going out and the chef on the garnish section was responsible to make soup if it was a soup starter and I remember this vividly this I'm going back like 20 years it was leaky potato soup (laughs) and the chef even watched the waiter fill the hot plate up with soup bowls for 120 people and then called the starter away at three o'clock or whenever they sat to have the starter and he hadn't made the soup so it's 120 bowls of soup empty there was nothing to give them and he his face i will never forget this guy's face when the head chef was saying where's the soup and he's like i forgot to make it <laughs> and we were on the larder like doing the, the the pastry and getting ready for the evening and we all we all ran over and we were steaming leeks and there was mashed potato and there was stock and there was pans and there was boiling so water out of we got it i think we made it within about 15 20 minutes 120 portions and then the, what was funny was the, the bride and groom feedback from the wedding was that the soup was nicer than when they came and tried it <laughs> on, the, on the like trial bits. Speed so, soup, you see. It's speed the way soup. forward. Um, I remember in my last job, um, I had two head chefs under me and Ben had ordered the wrong cut of beef for a wedding and we had to get the butcher to drive out at something like midnight, we realised, and he swapped it all over and we made him fish and chips and we gave him a bottle of red wine for coming out so late. <laughs> Um, because they'd have had I think we ordered rump and they'd ordered sirloin so sirloin's obviously a lot more expensive and a lot nicer and we couldn't just get away with giving them rump because they'd have kicked off so we well, had it's to always get weddings it you know weddings everything has to be right because you, you weddings, don't want a bridezilla yeah. so, going mad but apart from that I've just, you know people have dropped I remember once at Mallory Court I had this uh, Moroccan waiter called Eunice he was so funny Love the guy. Um, he's a big guy like me, and he didn't really suit being a waiter. He was a bit of a, you know, he wasn't very it's a elegant. Bit all over the place. And we put these, it was Michelin star food, lunch, onto the tray, big silver tray. He went through the outdoor, and all you heard was this massive crash bang wallop. <laughs> and the, the handle had fallen off the tray, the tray had gone down, the food slid off onto the stone floor and just smashed over the floor. And he came back in just holding the tray with one handle. <laughs> there's some things you can't yeah. you know there's some things that happen in kitchens you just mm. got to just be quick and just think out of the box and try and get something out what are you going to do for your <coughs> wedding what, what food I'm are you getting gonna... married this year actually so who's doing the food I'm getting married at Cripps Barn in the Cotswolds so I don't even know if they think no I'm a chef so I've just kept it on the download because I just want to enjoy the day nice. I'm not too fast but you're going to be looking and I've tasting I've got lots of chefs coming so my oh, fiance is a, a lot don't tell them they'll she's, have a heart attack she's a lot more worried that the, the expectation will be very very high um, it, we've gone for the venue more than the food the food is lovely still but it's not sort of the food that I do I mean to do my food you'd need an army of chefs you can't just get away with two or three <laughs> I'd need 20 so no we're, we're picking our menu and it's it's quite straightforward we're having like smoked salmon and seasonal you know seasonal you yeah. know, so, so, so you're, you're very I'm happy with it, it as long as there's plenty of wine You'll be I'm fine. not too bothered <laughs> <laughs> and when you were at Sudbury what was the sort of the dish that you really felt very proud of um, there was a few actually I've never had what they say what's your signature dish or you know I used to sort of laugh at that when people asked me but I did have dishes I used to do this lovely pigeon carpaccio with uh, Madeira jelly and hazelnut dressing and salt baked Jerusalem artichokes through the autumn winter and that went down really well um, we did a lovely red mullet dish with um, we'd make a crab bisque 
broccoli puree, pineapple, chutney and goat's cheese, which was a really weird one. Um, the Michelin inspector ate that the first month in and said it was one of the best red mullet dishes he's ever had. You should put that somewhere. Four years on, yeah. another Michelin inspector came and said it was one of the weirdest dishes he's ever ate and I should go back to the drawing board with it. So, you know, it's uh, all the time is somebody's personal opinion. And you've got to remember that and not yeah, take it subjective. too personally. Music, fashion, food, it's all the same. So... It's one of those, you do scratch your head a little bit when you've been well, it, told it's good and then you get told it's not. It's so. hard as well, though, when you put everything into something and then someone says that, you're just like... Oh. But these dishes, remember, are tested and tested and tested until they're perfect for the customer. We don't let them come near you until they're perfect in our eyes. But that's our eyes, you know, that's a chef's world. It might be just a little bit too wacky for the, for the average Joe. Mm. We also eat the dishes with, with the wine that you're going to drink them with if it's a tasting menu, so we get to try all the wines and we match that. So it is very, very personal from just choosing the plate, choosing the supplier, how, inspecting the ingredients when they come in in the morning, all the work and effort that goes into just producing that dish, which probably will be eaten in about a minute and a half mm. by somebody. But it's taken, some things can take three days process no. to make. So yeah, there's a lot, lot of effort. You've got to be a patient person. Yeah, you? and you've got to take, sometimes you've got to take the constructive feedback in inverted commas with a pinch of salt and not get yourself too wound up. Yeah, lay crime, lay back about zen about, which is difficult yeah. sometimes. And um, what I think is really interesting about your career, then, is we've talked about you know the it's quite stressful in that that world that you were in, and uh, from the days of washing pots and then coming all that way, and then now still being cre- incredibly creative, but doing something that has, suits your lifestyle, mm. which I think is a really inspired move. Yeah. Because Probably in your line of work, there aren't many jobs where you can no, do that, isn't. but you, you've located it and you, you're doing it. <laughs> I struck gold, yeah. So <laughs> I I went on holiday to Italy with my fiance, and I had a chat with her and I said, I think I'm at that crossroads where I could change here a little bit. I don't have to go for the same old, same old pigeonhole sort of rosette, Michelin star kitchen, chef roles, split shifts, working every hour, God sends, and working all those times and I could have some family and friend time and maybe it's time to give it a go and I might not like it so I've got to be open-minded I might I might miss the buzz of service I might miss the camaraderie I don't know what I'm getting myself in for but this opportunity was too good to not interview for and um, I've landed on my feet so an excellent team we still have the camaraderie we're still we still do stupid stuff we still have a laugh we still produce amazing food we're still impressing some big customers and helping the the company tick along and win contracts and all those sorts of things so we do feel like an integral part um you just haven't got those brutal hours and and sort of being phoned up um before i got up saying oh little johnny hasn't turned up for his breakfast shift can you come in and cook breakfast like oh thanks (laughs) so i don't have to worry about that that's amazing i don't have to cook for all the staff they bring their own packed lunch in here there's a subsidized restaurant on site i don't have anything to do with that so I purely develop dishes, cook lovely dinners and lunches for all these guests and get to teach my team because they haven't sort of had that chefy influence. Mm-hmm. They're sort of home economists and they've learned through going to university and, and study. So that's quite cool. And it's nine to five. So it has been a huge adjustment. And lots of my friends have rung me up and said, oh, have you got a job like that? Uh, or I want your yes. job. Could and you I'm, put in a good word for And me? I've said, you know, 
yeah, on the outside it looks fantastic, but it's still challenging. It still has the, the daily challenges. There's some things that you think, oh god, this is. I never signed up for this, but you've just got to take it in your stride. Mm-hmm. You've got to adapt a bit. I've rang my old head chef Simon, and had a, I was out walking the dog the other day, and I phoned him and had some advice of him because he does more of a sort of chefy office role now as the as a group chef. And you know, how did you feel when you changed into this new role? Did you feel a bit sort of duck out of water? Of course I did. You know, give it six months, you'll love it. You know, you've got to just keep persevering and crack on, because at the end of the day, I'm not going to be able to do this when I'm 50. So I do need to step into something that I can manage mm. and um, you know hopefully have a family in the future and I'll, I'll have got a job where I can enjoy that so I'm lucky as a chef did you ever at a time when even you hadn't even thought about working for Mila did you think well I can't do this whole chefing anti-social hours I might just go and do something completely different or have you always thought I've got to carry on I wished doing in a food? way I've never resented being a chef but I have thought why didn't I become like when I had the prospectus in front of me I should have been a plumber. Like, how much they charge for a call-out? Or an electrician? Or a, but you know, carpenter? Sometimes, sometimes you have to work on Christmas Day, don't you? So, you, so you've still got that problem. So, yeah, but not every Christmas Day. No, so, but no, originally I wanted to be an RAF pilot when I was younger. But I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't have the, the right mathematics, physics. You know, you've got to have a degree and all those things. I love the thrill of watching them fly the fighter jets. But my mum and dad have always have worked in hospitality, so that's how I got into it. And they used to cook with me a lot, so I think I got the bug from an early age. And also, being a chef is quite a thrilling thing. There's a lot of high pressure, so oh, you've yeah. still got that drama. It's, and then I've had the, the prestige of winning nice accolades, being on the telly, yeah. doing things with you know you guys, radio and magazines. You know, there's a lots to be proud of. So it's mm. still it's still cool in its own way. Yeah. But I have thought about it before. I thought, blimmin' it, you know, why am I a plumber? I could charge hundred quid for a call out. <laughs> that's easy money. <laughs> So you work here with your team and is the plan then do you try out, you're still doing new creative yeah. dishes and, and doing all the things that you've done in the past but just in a slightly different environment really. Yeah, so I've brought my restaurant recipes into here, into sort of home appliances but not realising how good the technology is here. And basically it's like cooking in a restaurant kitchen. Using Miele appliances I get to combination ovens, they do the bursts of steam, I've got... Um, sous vide I've got vacuum pack machines I've got everything I've seen them I mean can have, there's a dishwasher that you tap yeah to you open. can have you can set your home kitchen up like a Michelin star kitchen if you wanted to yeah. um, it just depends how much of a foodie and how much you enjoy cooking if you're just happy to stick a pizza in the oven then you know maybe you don't need all those bells and whistles but most people that buy the kitchens here are very proud and they they're very good cooks and they want to have a nice big bank of ovens and they like they like to entertain they like to have the family and friends around at christmas so it is fantastic and i've been able to just literally stick my recipe that i'd put in an industrial oven or a commercial oven straight into these domestic ones and it's the results the same so um i'm sure there will be in the future ones that i have to play around with to get them completely right but we off the back of that we produce a blog and a magazine and recipes online and we do food demonstrations all over the country and we have people coming here so we do have to be spot on because the people buying these kitchens are used to a, a nice way of life you know this is high-end stuff so they enjoy good food and good wine so you know the, what we produce in these demonstrations has to be spot on too so which is why you're the perfect man for the job because yeah. you've had all that background you see <laughs> do, it must be exciting as well though the fact when you started out food was not such a big thing as it is now we've got no. so many more food festivals cooking books everywhere it, i think it just started that revolution of Jamie Oliver had just gone on the telly as a naked chef ready steady cook was on the telly 
Ainsley Harriet was big. He's still he's back now, isn't he? I <laughs> he love is. that guy. Yeah. I absolutely I'd love to meet him. Um, that had just all kicked off. And off the back of that, there was tons of programmes came out. Then you got the real hard-hitting reality shows of like Ramsey behind the scenes and Hell's Kitchen with Gary Rhodes and Marco Pierre White. So, and it made it fashionable, it made it trendy, it well, made it I think they're the funky. new rock, rock stars. Mm. Yeah, so often. it inspired lots of kids to go and do catering college or go into kitchens. And like we said, it's not for everybody, but some jobs aren't for everybody. You've just, you've got to have that passion. It can't just be because you want to be famous or you want to be on the TV or have a cookbook. You've got to enjoy cooking ingredients. So, yeah, I think I was just at the start of that. Um, and then obviously social media now is just huge and you can follow your favourite chefs or your favourite bands or your favourite whatever and it's in your face now, you can't get away from it and there's a cook show, there's there's food TV isn't there now mm. so mm. that wasn't around I suppose when I was younger and I used to record things on a videotape yeah. so. and, and as a result of that, have you seen more people come into the industry do you think? No, I think it's the opposite, We're, they're, they're really struggling at the moment um, there's a lot to do with the way that the government funds colleges there's a real root of the problem is the funding and colleges um, having the right budgets to be able to put these courses on. It's an expensive course to run a catering school, you know. If you're going to prep a fish, you need to get 20 whole fish for 20 students. That's expensive, you know. You can't just prep one fish in front of 20 people and then expect them to be able to do it when they go into the big bad world. So they are expensive courses to run and lots of colleges have um, a restaurant on the side to make some money back just to cover the cost, which is good. But then it's all about the promoting that restaurant and it's all about the public in the little town or the city supporting the restaurant and supporting the trainees. So there's a lot to there's a lot that we are looking at, I think, as chefs to try and put a bit back in to get these chefs to come out of these colleges and, and training or else there won't be any chefs. Mm-hmm. And there's, oh, there's talk of Brexit and then the foreign staff, they fill in a lot of the gaps. You, mm-hmm. you know, you can work in a kitchen, you can work with six nationalities. You know, I've worked with lots of Europeans, people from Australia on gap years. So yeah, there's there's a there's a wide um, spread of nationalities doing the hospitality in this country. So I think it also because it's such a hard job as well. A lot of people shirk away from it. It's yeah. <clears throat> what you you've told us it's a hard job. Those those split shifts. They're still still thinking about those. <laughs> if, if anyone is thinking about getting into it, what sort of we've talked about the sort of characteristics you need to. Be quite adaptable, don't you? And mm. and work as a team. Would you? What other advice would you give? First of all, you need to enjoy cooking. So if you're cooking at home, mm. brilliant. Um, if you enjoy, you get the buzz I get is cooking for somebody and making them happy. So that's what it boils down to is seeing that smile or somebody saying that was delicious. That's your, you know, that's your um, achievement back. Then to go and maybe get a part-time job in a, in your local hotel or restaurant, you know, whether it's just being a waiter or, or a commie chef or washing up, it doesn't matter. Go and see if you enjoy that environment. And it doesn't have to be a chef job, it could just be a waiter job. Um, see if you enjoy that. And then um, look at your colleges, start, you know, and choose the one that's correct for you, like the full-time course, the day release course, or whether you look at a, a training scheme, like an apprenticeship scheme. And, and then give it a go and I think if you start young you'll figure out whether it's, it's your career path and then I think when you're younger if it isn't then you've still got time to change yeah. Yeah. sometimes I watch MasterChef amateurs and I scratch my head when I see these people and it says Jimmy 42 solicitor but he wants to be a chef and I'm thinking <laughs> to myself what you must be mad you've got to do it when you're younger yeah I yeah. think so I think but 
you know, I, there's plenty of people that have set nice businesses up off the back of it. You don't have to do that full-on split shift. You can do private catering for weddings or, you know, you know, party catering, things like that. There's lots of different branches of it, cafes, you know, uh, you don't have to go full-on Michelin stars and rosettes. You, you can find your level. You can open a, open a pizza shop, you know. As long as they're the best pizzas in town, then... That's fine. Yeah. So for you, looking back on, on your career so far, yeah. the pivotal moments... We talked about the Great British Menu. That that was a, a great turning point for you because it got you more known, I suppose. Yeah. But there are certain jobs and certain people in your career that have made, been massive for you. Yeah. And don't let's not forget your dad as well. Yeah, dad. <laughs> yeah, the two Simons. So Simon Haig was my first sort of mentor. He's like a dad, um, a second dad. And then Simon Rogan, who was inspirational. He was a bit like working with Willy Wonka. Like it was like mad. He'd draw pictures of food on the table and <laughs> with a marker pen and oh he was mad. But to he he was so Simon Haig sort of taught you how to do sauces, fishmongery, butchery and then Simon uh, Rogan it was these flavour combinations and presentation and sort of just the theatrical part behind working in a restaurant. So yeah, two main people. Um, they've always sort of been there as mentors, and then just some really good friends along the way that we've all sort of come up the ranks together. I'm very proud of some of my friends. You know, Adam Reed in Manchester is doing a really good job, and, and Richard Edwards had a Michelin star in the Cotswolds for years. Again, he decided he had a family, got married, and he he got a brilliant job back sort of uh, up in Yorkshire where he's from. Less hours, uh, three days off a week, so he could enjoy having a family. Mm. So I do think there is a point. Unless you're going to stay single for the whole life and devote it to cooking, then there will be a uh, there's a fork in the road where you that you have to make a decision maybe to just sort of duck out a little bit of this sort of full on. Otherwise, you just keel over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't think you could do it past a certain age. I think you'd just burn out. Mm. So you and don't see many old chefs. No. <laughs> or they no, just what look do, old. What do they turn into? <laughs> I always thought that like the maintenance men in hotels were old chefs. <laughs> I've always dreamt of my career finishing as a pot wash so when I full circle when I when I finally retire just for a bit of beer money yeah so I can meet the the boys in the pub when I'm in my 60s just wash up down the local pub for three nights and still be in that atmosphere and and not tell anyone that I used to be a chef until I get to know them yeah but you want to interfere you'll be like no you're not doing that right that'd be quite nice just (laughs) just to wash the dishes and then have a beer after service and you know and have my little wage so that would be quite funny to to end how it started that sounds like that's just perfect isn't it full circle and go home and you still be cooking for your family what what would be your perfect dish to to cook family um they got they get me cooking loads of different things but I mean you can't be a, a really good roast. They all love that. You can't go wrong. Because, I mean, we're all sort of... There's certain things in Britain that we all eat, and it pleases everybody. But we're quite experimental at home. We've been cooking lots of um, dishes from Persian cookbooks at home. So wow. we've been, I made a really cool uh, sort of um, Persian-influenced lamb hot pot the other day with loads of spices in it. And we had some friends over, and they were, like, falling over themselves. Um, my fiance was cooking a beautiful slow cooked pork belly the other day. We did it for Boxing Day actually with couscous and pomegranate, um, and they were again tripping over themselves. Because I said to her, I said, "Let's not bother with cold cuts and all that boring rubbish that you have on Boxing Day." I said, "Let's do something out of this cookbook." Yeah. You know, even I'm inspired by these cookbooks. So this, we did this beautiful pork belly, and they were raving about it. So. And just think, next year you'll be preparing it all at I'm home. I'm going, no, 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 no. I'm going to my dad's next year, <laughs> this year. <laughs> I will help him, because last year was blimmin' hard work. 
So, um, oh, well, I mean, I'm so looking forward to coming to this pub and finding you in the back yeah. kitchen doing the pot washing when you're in your yeah. 60s. Just with a wry smile. <laughs> He's done it all and now he can yeah, just relax. Just relax. It's really interesting talking about your career so far and, and I hope it continues to go really well at Miele. I'm sure yeah. it will. Good Thank to, you very good much. Good to talk to you, Andrew. Cheers, Ali. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening and don't forget you can subscribe, which doesn't mean you have to pay for it, which my mum thought. No, you don't have to pay. It's free. Uh, But it does mean you get a brand new episode every week. You can rate us too. That really helps, unless it's a bad review, obviously. Uh, We're on iTunes, Podbean and Spotify and Twitter at WhereGoRight. If you're wondering how producer Megan is, well, (laughs) she's got the most terrible mosquito bites. Um, She did send me a very gruesome picture, which I will not share. Um, But she's still in Ecuador having a lovely time, obviously, and working very hard too. Uh, Thank you for listening and we'll see you next week.